Welcome to the newest conversation at the Review of Democracy. My name is Vera Stepanovic. I'm a co-head of the political economy section at Revdem. And today I'm co-hosting the show with our editor, Ferenc Latso. Hi, Ferenc. Hi, Vera. And today we have the great pleasure of hosting Fritz Bartel. Um, welcome, Fritz, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Now, Fritz Bertel is an assistant professor of international affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. And his first book, The Triumph of Broken Promises, The End of the Cold War and the Rise of Neoliberalism, which we will be discussing today, has just been published by the Harvard University Press um, and is already making a bit of sensation on academic Twitter because of its exceptionally rigorous research combined with some very bold interpretations of the end of the Cold War. So we're very much looking forward to discussing it. Uh, now, in this major new book, uh, Fritz, uh, you offer an original take on the late Cold War period by linking developments that have so far been studied rather separately, right? You connect economic and political changes. You connect the rise of neoliberalism and the peaceful end of the Cold War and present a shared history of these processes as they unfolded both in the East and in the West. And you do all of that via an analytical concept of breaking promises, right? And so my first question would be, why do you think that the notion of breaking promises provides a good framework to capture these developments? And how does this notion help us understand this period and the political and economic transformations that occurred on both sides of the Iron Curtain? Well, th- thanks again for having me on, and and, and thanks for that uh, first question. I, you know, I hope as a historian that it's um, a good concept. This concept of uh, the politics of breaking promises, uh, first and foremost, because hopefully it's just it, it accords with the historical record. Um, you know, I think uh, I opened the book with this uh, a letter that a Hungarian pensioner sent to the finance minister in. in late 1989. So the moment at which I would have thought uh, people would have been celebrating this kind of transformative uh, moment of historic change. And instead, he's writing to the finance minister asking uh, in a very biting, sarcastic tone for a rope uh, with which it's implied that he he would like to hang himself so that he can uh, be less of a burden on the state budget, he says, because what's happening all around him is, yes, a process of political change is unfolding, but also his economic and social security is evaporating before his eyes. Um, the state is essentially breaking the promise, uh, the, the kind of social contract that it had set with him and with Hungarian citizens in general. Um, and and it became clear to me as I as I did the research that this was not an accident that these two things were happening uh, at the same time this process of political change and and these uh, these breaking of economic and, and social uh, promises to people uh, because when I when I got in the archives specifically in that case in the IMF's archives I could see that Hungarian leaders the, the kind of uh, the reform communists of the late uh, communist period were explicitly trying, to, well, not explicitly to the country, but explicitly to the IMF, trying to democratize or liberalize their political system in order to legitimize what this process of austerity that they knew was about to unfold because of the IMF's uh, dictates. And so 
Uh, I think some of those things have been discussed before in, in economic language and the sources that I, that I used used economic language, something like structural adjustment or something like that. Um, but that as a phrase um, didn't seem to kind of get at the why it was such a difficult and disruptive process. And so this idea of breaking a promise seemed much more um, kind of to get at why this would be such a difficult thing for, for governments to do, for people to accept. Uh, and then you know, the, the last piece of why it became comparative, the next thing I introduced at the start of the book is, is uh, the letters and various actions that Paul Volcker in the United States um, was receiving when he was basically doing the exact same thing to the American people about a decade earlier. Um, and was getting severe backlash uh, from Americans who felt similarly that he was destroying their economic uh, and social security. And the question became, why was Volcker able to do this and the American system didn't collapse? I mean, it's almost, when you think about it in those terms, it's almost uh, absurd the amount of contingency that that seems to give to the United States. But if you really leave it as an open question, would communism survive or would capital or, or democratic capitalism survive? And therefore you have to take seriously the prospect that democratic capitalism might collapse. Why was Volcker able to do that and the state not collapse, this, the, 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 the order not collapse? Um, but when communists tried to do the same thing, they either explicitly tried to change their political system as they did it, or they resisted the process until uh, kind of they collapse, the collapse happened anyway. And so uh, this, this idea of breaking promises, imposing economic and social discipline on people uh, just seemed to be pervasive to me as I looked at the last two decades of the Cold War and it, and it seemed to be very closely tied to the political changes that we call or discuss as the end of the Cold War, the collapse of communism. So I wanted to bring those two things, uh, bring them together. Yeah, I, I find that connection to be fascinating. And that's probably the most puzzling. Um, and the way you put it right now, also the most provocative parts of the book, right? The, the, the argument that democracy turned out to be vastly better at breaking promises than dictatorships. Um, and this is, this is something you would not expect as a political scientist because uh, democracy is supposed to be built on the regime of accountability, the most sort of responsive form of, uh, of, uh, uh, government. Um, but also as a political economist studying the region, I remember, you know, you look at the, the early debates about the introduction of democracy in Eastern Europe, and there is this, there is a very different expectation. There is the expectation that the dual transition, so-called, so simultaneously to democracy and market, will be impossible, uh, precisely because democracies shouldn't be that good at, at breaking promises and imposing hardship because people will go to the, the polls and, and rebel. Um, why didn't it happen? Um, how do you explain this paradox? Or why is it that those early observers have missed about this process? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's something we'll have to study in much more detail as the 1990s uh, become uh, open for historic, at least, uh, I think, much more historical detailed analysis. Uh, interestingly, it's the exact same perspective that people in the West had in the 1970s, that, the, that democracies were going to prove incapable of imposing any kind of discipline on themselves because the politicians were responsive, supposedly responsive to their people. Um, 
I think there's there's probably two mechanisms at work uh, that I can see just from the book that I that I was able to put together. One is what Balsarovich uh, called the this the the um, uh, period of extraordinary politics. So this this idea that when you go through a regime change, there is this moment right after it that uh, where the people he theorizes uh, uh, kind of are willing to accept a great deal of hardship precisely because they uh, they know that there's kind of a surplus of, of regime legitimacy at that moment. And therefore the regime should be able to use, should use that, that legitimacy to kind of impose, uh, as I think his phrasing is even radical economic policy change or reform that would otherwise be impossible. And so I think that that, at least from the research I was able to do for this book, that clearly happens in both Poland and Hungary, uh, where the IMF and and officials in the Polish and Hungarian governments are looking to elections in the immediate post-election period uh, as periods where they will be able to achieve things uh, economically uh, and and in terms of policy that they had that they they hadn't been able to do for many many years, uh, and so so this 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 idea that immediately following elections is kind of this unique time where there's a surplus of legitimacy to carry out difficult change, I think is, is happening. The other thing that's happening is redrawing the lines between what constitutes the market and what constitutes any kind of state regulated uh, system. And so as the area of the market expands, kind of what is subject to market uh, mechanisms and market regulations expands and the area of the state of so-called state control contracts, then I think the population is much more uh, just generally subject to economically disciplinary uh, uh, policies. So things like unemployment, things like price increases, or uh, just much more uh, kind of disciplinary labor regimes happen through processes of privatization that uh, aren't technically subject to the state anymore, uh, but precisely because they're not, the uh the the population kind of can't form resistance to those policies in the same way they were able to when they had a kind of uh a social contract directly with the, the the communist government in those cases so i think this this combination of, of extraordinary politics and the expansion of the market sector versus the state sector uh provide kind of two reasons or two areas in which uh this discipline was able to to unfold alongside processes of, of political democratization. Great. No, I think this divergence has in many ways been unexpected. And I think you provide a great insight into explaining why it actually happened to, to be uh, the case. And while we're at the subject of divergences, the end of the Cold War uh, obviously meant uh, not only the end of Soviet-type regimes uh, in Europe, but also the end of the Soviet empire, right? And uh, in the book, you make a really intriguing observation that President Reagan and Paul Walker from the Fed accomplished a major feat uh, in essentially getting their empire to pay for itself uh, by the the 1980s. And this was a huge source of uh, material returns uh, to the US, whereas the Soviet empire by this time turned into an ever greater burden for the USSR. So could you explain to to our listeners how that massive divergence between the two parties happened? 
I mean, what conditions enabled American power to thrive so much in the international system of the late Cold War years? And maybe in connection with that, you could, if I could ask you to link that a bit to contemporary discussions as well, because I have a feeling that nowadays so many of the critics of American foreign policy basically argue that the U.S. empire is so costly and so wasteful. So I'm wondering how, how your story relates to, to what is being debated at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I tell this, this story uh, as one of kind of the, the major contingencies uh, or unexpected developments in the book. This, so Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan are often looked at as a sort of team, a neoliberal kind of revolutionary team. But in fact, Volcker is, is appointed by Jimmy Carter and, um, and is in, in power for roughly a year before Reagan actually comes into office. And their policies in some ways diverge dramatically. So um, Volcker in his anti-inflationary crusade doesn't think Reagan's tax cuts are a very good policy because they're extremely inflationary. And so he has to keep monetary interest rates much higher in order to compensate for Reagan's policy. So I think hopefully one of the things the book brings out a little bit is that they're actually uh, a little bit more in tension with each other than kind of on the same side. But what their what their the combination of their policies produces for the United States is this massive gap in U.S. fiscal policy. So an, a need to borrow an extraordinary amount of money, and because of Volcker's policy, a, a, a kind of mechanism or a pressure that that attracts foreign capital into the United States at levels that had never previously been imaginable. So. Uh, the U.S. current account deficit explodes in the uh, early 1980s, which basically means that the United States starts to borrow extraordinary amounts of money from the rest of the world. Uh, and, and where exactly is this money coming from? It's coming from its allies, uh, countries like Japan, West Germany, Saudi Arabia, the surplus countries, the countries that have a, a surplus amount of capital, are sending that money back into the United States kind of in a in a early version of the mechanism that China now uses to kind of recycle its surplus and keep the United States buying its its goods. That's what these countries uh, were also trying to do. But the upshot for the United States is that it can basically have both guns and butter at the same time without any kind of restriction on its policies. And so something like the Reagan military buildup uh, becomes possible or becomes sustainable uh, precisely because the United States can borrow an extraordinary amount of money uh, from the rest of the world. This is a, a, a format that is just not possible for the Soviet Union. Um, first of all, it doesn't have wealthy allies uh, to anywhere close to the extent that the United States does. And it also struggles throughout the 70s and 80s to extract itself from the subsidies, usually through energy and raw materials, that it's providing to its allies uh, in the Eastern Bloc. And so what happens is essentially the United States figures out a way, as I write in the book, to, to get its allies to pay for itself. Its allies become an enormous material asset to its projection of power. Uh, and the Soviet Union can never achieve the same thing. Its allies, and you see this in, in Andropov or Gorbachev's thinking uh, throughout the, the 1980s, that um, they just they eventually realized that these countries from so from the standpoint of Soviet national interests are just not uh, economically worth uh, saving in the sense of Soviet national policy. And, and they're worth letting go uh, no matter the political costs. And so I think that has a, a great deal to do with 1989. 
uh, and the processes that that unfold in that year. In terms of uh, the contemporary debate, I mean, I think this this idea that the United States is able to borrow this extraordinary amount of money, which continues to this day, is precisely what allows it to be so wasteful in its imperial projections. Right? We're, we're we as an American, uh, we're extraordinarily bad at projecting our power. It seems to me, at least we have been over the last. Uh, 20 years, and it, it hasn't really done much of anything uh, for the country's security. In fact, it's been extremely harmful to it. And yet, we've been uh, allowed to do it, uh, or the, the projection of power continues precisely because this economic arrangement continues, where the U.S. dollar remains, the, uh, for now, the uh, reserve currency of, of much of the world. Um, we foreigners continue to, to, particularly in times of crisis like the one we're in right now, continue to, to pour their money into the United States rather, rather than withdraw it. And therefore, uh, it's, it's kind of unrecognized in American political discourse, but um, we, are, we are reliant on the funds of the rest of the world to, to maintain this imperial formation that we're in. And, and regardless of the empire's actual performance, whether it's wasteful or, or, or not. Uh, and I, I, I agree that it, it has been, um, but this, this imperial formation that takes shape in the early 1980s is, is, is exactly what allows that waste uh, to, to continue uh, for such a long time. Yeah. Um, if I may go back to an earlier point that you made, which is the, the tension between uh, uh, Volcker and, uh, and Reagan. Um, I find that very, very interesting because um, slightly disheartening aspect of your book is is this uh, the starting point that the promises just had to be made uh, broken um, uh, that the crisis the cumulative crisis of the 1970s created a situation in which um, the the governments had to sort of impose strict austerity and discipline on the citizens and the question was only maybe how or which one will be more successful at it um, now this um as as i as i read that i was thinking well this is slightly different from from the histories of neoliberalism that i i already know which emphasized that yes of course there was a moment of crisis but the crisis had to be constructed and seized by a particular intellectual and political movement um that then offered very specific solutions um so as you say you know the tension between sort of the inflation and the and, and the tax cuts but the agreement was there on uh, you know the fact that you had to get rid of high wages break down organized labor downsize the state cut welfare um so what role do you see for this kind of more agent focused narrative in in uh, in your own book um and perhaps most interestingly for for the other side were there who were such agents in the east were they the same was it an imported discourse or were there homegrown mm -hmm. agents of neoliberalism mm -hmm. um yeah so i i agree it is uh a dis disheartening premise of the uh, of the book, and I I don't you know I I hope someone will disprove it or um, right I mean it it, it should be uh, disproven. It's kind of an and I I hope it's an analytical premise or a narrative premise in the sense like if you take that as your starting point, then so much of the seventies and eighties begins to make sense, or to me anyway, it did. Um, in terms of you can you can build and this just kept happening over and over again. So why was it that it kept happening? Um, in terms of how it interacts with current 
more agent-driven histories of neoliberalism, or I would, or I would add, kind of intellectual histories of neoliberalism. You know, I, when I when I got to the moments at which these the, the neoliberal turn happens, um, I don't find the policymakers themselves all that uh, attracted to neoliberal ideas per se. Uh, so, one of the ones that I detailed uh, is like, why did Paul Volcker adopt monetarism as a as a policy? It wasn't because he like Milton Friedman had um, kind of attracted him to the notion that monetarism was the ultimate, uh, the best way to go about doing it. It was that he faced this the, these, this extraordinarily difficult political landscape in which kind of shifting the burden of his decisions onto market forces, uh, which is what it would seem like if he used a monetar monetarist framework. Uh, would would kind of ease his political uh, the political way. So so I quote one of the policymakers who says, "What the, what essentially all of this allowed American policymakers to do was to say, look, no hands. There's no hands controlling what's going on. Right. This is just market forces, and that applies, I think, also to some of what Ronald Reagan uh, was doing. Right. If you can say the government's not the sol the solution to the problem, but is the problem." And you can convince people that that's true and that the market will produce a better ultimate outcome. Um, that eases the political uh, the political load that you have to bear, I guess. And so I think uh, as I, I write in the introduction, uh, at least for the, the history that I've told, I don't think this is a, a, the, a, a well, the way that ideas take shape in this book is is that the pressure to break promises uh, changes how people adopt ideas, but it doesn't drive the creation of new ideas. And so these ideas are being created all the time, but under what conditions are they actually adopted? That's what I'm trying to identify in the book because that's when it actually influences policymaking, as far as I can tell. And and when it when it actually influences uh, when these ideas get adopted is is at these moments when seemingly uh, uh, promises need to be broken. Now, uh, on the question of, of was there a sim, who were the agents on the other side? Um, I don't know, this is where you, it gets into like who is a neoliberal and who isn't. Um, and uh, I, people have lots of different ideas about that. I would say that there are a number of officials, uh, many of whom I talk about in, uh, in the book, uh, who, are very much in favor of disciplinary economic policy. So they, they see the challenge of breaking promises as one that uh, Eastern Bloc states have to uh, accomplish if they're going to continue to survive in a more interconnected global economy. Uh, and if they're going to resolve something like their sovereign debt problems, or if you're in the Soviet Union and you want to uh, essentially start to move to a kind of post-Fortis, post-industrial, Soviet economy, how exactly do you go about doing that? Many of the economists uh, throughout the bloc and, and policymakers begin to conclude that uh, it's going to require some sort of disciplinary policies. Now, I, I don't think they're full uh, neoliberals per se. I think those people generally arrive in the immediate post-communist period. But one of the things that I hope the book uh, can show is that this pressure for discipline is a cause of the end of the Cold War, the cause of the collapse of communism, not a consequence of it. Right? So many of 
at least the histories that I read, right? Um, shock therapy comes as kind of something either that Balsarovich decides, you know, because he's in office in late 1989, uh, that this is what Poland needs, or Jeffrey Sachs shows up and, and, and tells him that that's what should be done. Uh, what I'm trying to point out is that this pressure far precedes the collapse of communism and that the collapse of communism itself was driven by this the kind of same disciplinary pressures uh, that uh, that eventually take shape in the form of, of something like shock therapy. So um, I think the pressures are there. I think there are officials who are thinking in, in what I would call the politics of breaking promises, even if that doesn't fully make them a kind of, they didn't read Friedrich Hayek or something and, and uh, and just and declare themselves neoliberals. Great. I think these are fascinating insights also into what the historian is actually trying to do, what the historian is actually trying to figure out, right? While you're writing a book. I think that was that was really excellent. Um, now, another thing which really struck me about the book is that you really try to offer a reinterpretation of the end of communism in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, right? There is the famous, uh, the people have toppled the Berlin Wall and the world will never be the same again kind of narrative, right? If you wish. And, and of course, you cast in 1989 in a very different uh, light. And you do not see it so much as the high point of democratization, but rather as a revolution from above, right? Uh, you write, for instance, uh, at, at one point that the seat of government was returned to the people only so that their power to resist the government could be transcended, right? It's a very paradoxical kind of situation. And I, and I think that really gets to the heart of to, to the heart of the matter. And at some point, you also refer to in 1989 as economic adjustment masked as political revolution, right? Another very striking formulation, I would say. So I would guess, you know, one could say that the book really devotes particular attention to the ways that uh, the conjuncture of the oil crisis, uh, the sovereign debt crisis in the Eastern Bloc, and then the need uh, to impose uh, economic discipline made such an outcome. So kind of economic adjustment, master's political revolution made such an outcome really likely uh, in countries like Poland, like Hungary, or like East uh, Germany, the, the three major cases that you study in, in Central and Eastern Europe. So I was wondering whether you could say more about what we learn uh, by comparing these three countries, you know, do you see them as conforming basically uh, to the same uh, pattern uh, or do they rather help us understand how the different mechanisms through which these economic pressures uh, translated uh, into into a broadly shared agreement on the need for, for radical change? I mean, I mean, how, how, how do you view this kind of regional story? So I think... Um... The common point that they share is that uh, they all arrive with, uh, I will say, they all arrive at the moment where they either do or think that they are about to lose access to global capital markets. Uh, now, the, the major caveat, is, as I was shocked to discover in the book, is that East Germany actually completely doesn't understand how much sovereign debt it's in, and so it thinks it's in a far worse situation than it actually was. Uh, but nevertheless, East German policymakers are convinced that they're in massive amounts of debt and that the IMF is basically waiting just around the corner. Uh, and this is so I think all three of them, and this is true, not just of those three, but of uh, some countries like Romania as well, uh, arrive 
in the early 1980s at this moment where kind of the decade of easy access to foreign capital that they've had in the 70s is going to end. Uh, and and then the question becomes what do you what do you do with that like how do you how do you try to resolve that and um, they take then very different paths to 1989 so uh, you know Poland is kind of the standard bearer or the, the 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 case that everyone is watching to see how this plays out when of course the uh, the leadership in 1980 decides that in order to get a little bit better standing on international capital markets they're going to try to raise prices for the third time in a decade it doesn't work uh it's it spurs the formation of solidarity and and they have this year and a half long crisis uh which is really about whether or not the polish people are going to get any kind of political say in exchange for accepting austerity so that's it's this first moment in the block where this exchange of political control in return for uh, the acceptance of some kind of economic adjustment or discipline or austerity uh, takes shape. And basically the two sides realize in that crisis that they can't come to terms. Solidarity is demanding what the party perceives as full control of the country uh, and the party is not willing to give it up. Uh, and therefore, martial law becomes the, the way in which this is resolved. Uh, obviously, not a, a far from a peaceful way that it's going to that it's resolved at that point. But but the first wave of kind of Polish adjustment and, and discipline follows in the wake of, of martial law. Uh, officials in Poland and Hungary are watching what's happening in Poland. The Soviet Union are watching what's happening in Poland, of course. And uh, I think. Uh, and there's some evidence for this, uh, much more reluctant to move in any kind of disciplinary direction precisely because they don't want to have their own form of a Polish crisis develop uh, within their borders. And so they 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 then take different uh, reactions or, or different strategies over the course of the rest of the decade. Hungary uh, is able to return to access to global capital, becomes very dependent on Japanese capital actually, which I was uh, very interesting to realize uh, in the middle of the 1980s, but eventually by 1987, that too runs out. And, and because the party is aware of what's, what's happened in Poland, it basically takes the strategy of trying to proactively liberalize its political system so that it never, uh, it's, it wants to kind of keep control of this, uh, this set of events and get out ahead of any kind of societal reaction to its disciplinary measures. And so it proactively tries to build up a political opposition that it, it can then um, theoretically bring into or, or help legitimize, bring into the government or help legitimize these disciplinary policies. The East Germans take almost the exact opposite view, which is to just deny that this is any kind of issue and to state, Eric Honecker very clearly stating like, if we start to go down this road, it will, it will be the end of our country. Um, and he's kind of uh, criticized throughout the bloc and criticized in retrospect for taking this this view of this highly resistant view. But we also, you know, you ultimately have to ask, was he was he correct? I mean, he he knew in some ways. Um, I mean, I'm not I'm not advocating the extension of the East German state, but but if you were an East German leader, you you would you know you would have known that if you if you start to move in a disciplinary direction, it it will likely cause significant social and political upheaval. And so he resisted it until the very end. 
Um, and as I detail in the book, uh, therefore the process in East Germany takes on a, a form of, of not really uh, trying to liberalize yourself domestically, but rather open your borders. And that uh, that results ultimately uh, or contributes to the opening of the Berlin Wall, uh, as we know, in uh, November of 1989 and, and, and goes from there. So I think, um, and Romania takes its own, of course, own separate direction where it does actually impose all kinds of uh, discipline on, on its people uh, as an attempt to try to regain its international sovereignty, to, to kind of escape the uh, the the clause of international creditors, uh, which doesn't work out uh, any better. In fact, works out much worse. Uh, so, uh, so each each country takes its own road to 1989. But I think they're all uh, driven by or influenced by this pressure stemming from access or or no access to international capital markets. Uh, and once that access is closed uh, or, or much more restricted in the early 1980s, the, the kind of the clock is, is then ticking. Excellent. You know, it's just a funny thing to say, but, you know, I started a primary school in 1988 and we were all convinced in that class that the Japanese were taking over the world. And I never understood in retrospect why that was. But actually, your book really explains. Right. <laughs> this was, of course, back in back in Hungary yeah, at the yeah. time. Now, but I wanted to ask a more serious a follow up question, because one thing that I really found really striking in the conclusion is that you state there that your work is essentially a work of historical recovery, right? I think many people will see this as a very original work, as a very ambitious work, and, you know, providing a lot of new new insights. But you, you, you claim this is really a work of uh, historical recovery and add to that that the people to whom the story that you tell would have made most intuitive sense, uh, indeed the people who likely would have found this entire narrative unsurprising, as you write, were the communist leaders themselves. I think this is a very, very striking point in the book, at least the, the way I read it. And I was wondering whether you could perhaps comment on this very intriguing observation. Well, I think maybe any historical revisionist uh, probably gets away with more if they can claim they're just recovering the past rather than revising it. Uh, no, I mean, so I... I you know, I think it's, I hope it's, it is just an act of recovery. I don't want, I was very conscious when writing the conclusion. I'm, obviously, I'm making a lot, to do comparative history in the first place, you're, you are making a set of connections that don't exist in and of themselves in the historical record necessarily. Uh, and so, so you, you are in some way imposing uh, a view on the past or a, a logic on the past. And I asked myself, okay, where, how did I construct this logic? Where did I actually get it from? Because I didn't set out to write a, I didn't start my dissertation saying, I'm going to connect the oil crisis of 1973 to the end of the Cold War. I did, I wouldn't have even known how to ask that question. Um, I wanted to write a book, I thought, on this, the $90 billion in sovereign debt that Eastern Europe, that the Eastern Bloc was in when the Cold War ended and, and just figure out why that, why that happened in the first place. And I started to, to read some of the evidence that I then quote in the conclusion where there's East German officials on the day that the Berlin Wall is coming down saying, if we want to figure out why we got here, it's because there was a general price explosion in the world in 1973. Um, and I remember reading that and, and starting to think back. And then I, I read you know things from Gorbachev saying, um, 
what what's what was it all based on in Poland and Hungary? Uh, he said it was our cheap fuel and and credit from the West. Um, and so as I as I started to think about like where I got the ideas that became this book, um, it was more and more you know primarily from the communist leaders themselves. Um, and and so you know that's why I kind of say I of course I can't verify it, and particularly after. Uh, yesterday, we're recording this on the day after Gorbachev uh, passed away. Um, you know, increasingly, you can't really verify how whether or not that's true. But to but to me, the historical record speaks to the idea that at least many communist officials understood that their challenges were in some way analogous to what the uh, democratic West was going through. And um, and I cite officials who were envious in some way of what Margaret Thatcher was able to do in Great Britain. Um, and, and so I say, you know, they shared some of her ends and were envious of her means. And so they tried to, they started to try to adopt her means, one of which was to legitimize their political system. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll see if I, if it stands up as, as an act of historical recovery rather than historical revision, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Um, but I, you know, I, I hope that's what that's what I've done, uh, because uh, comparative history is is always an act of of kind of piecing things together retrospectively. But but the question is where where does that come from? How legitimate is that in the first place? And hopefully this is legitimate because many of my actors uh, were the ones doing those comparisons in the in the first place. I would like to ask maybe a slightly different question. So I, I find the, the, the notion of comparing uh, the, the strategies for breaking promises between East and West and within different uh, Eastern uh, configurations very important, obviously. Um, but you do say in your book, um, and I, I think this is something that, you know, is, uh, is obviously um, a choice, uh, that these the 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 politics of making promises and the 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 challenges of breaking promises was specific to what you call the global north um so the first and the second world where these promises were made in the course of the post war period in the 20th century and were made to a relatively specific category the white working man um now if you Stand back now with a sort of uh, you know uh, distance of time and uh, and 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 space. Um, do you see the narrative changing in any way if you were to extend this analysis to women, minorities, countries in the global south who perhaps didn't make it to the making of the promises, but had to participate in this uh, sort of disciplinary period themselves? Um, did this transformation impact them in similar and analogous ways, or? Was there something else to it? Did neoliberalism make its own promises to such people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's a it's a it's a challenging question for my for obviously the way the book is constructed um, because uh, you could say you know stop on page five when when I whenever I introduce making promises and say like this 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 isn't even a framework that should apply because it only applies to a very small set of people. Um, or not a small set, but a, a particular set of, of people, white men in the global north. Um, but I think, if, I guess, if you're 
interested in the history of the Cold War, which is where I, I started this in the first place, uh, it, it's, it seems just true to me that, um, rightly or wrongly, that's, that's who the, both sides were trying to build their legitimacy uh, for in the first place, right? And so, um, so the politics of making promises was indeed uh, only made to that particular slice of, of the population. And then I do think, you know, in terms of what promises did neoliberalism make to others, it starts, and, and was it successful in any way of, of achieving that? Um, in the United States, so Gary Gerstle has just written a, a great book about the rise and fall of the neoliberal order, which says that, that the reason the, the American left, at least portions of it, embraced the neoliberal vision was precisely because it kind of allowed identity politics uh, to be fully realized um, so that you could, you could uh, you know, accept or accept into the political order uh, minorities and women uh, and uh, you know, the LGBTQ community um, precisely because it was an order built on individualism and individual rights uh, and, and group rights that were outside of this uh, white male normative framework. Um, the extent to which it happened in other places, I mean, on a purely economic level, I think there are countries in the global South that have benefited enormously from the neoliberal era, if we wanna call it that. I mean, just in terms of pure economic growth, uh, China, of course, being the, the leading example. But then there's many, many others that, uh, as you said, never even got to the period of making promises in the first place, and it only has gotten worse since then. Um, and and that's uh, no doubt a significant part of the uh, the legacy of the neoliberal order was that it was never going to it, it was it never tried to uh, include everyone within it uh, in in terms of the global south, and it. it never really came close to succeeding in that either. And so I end the book, uh, you know, by saying uh, the question that arises after politics, have, after after promises have been broken is how states can sustainably keep their promises to all their citizens, because it's really something that has never actually happened yet, right? States have never kept, made or kept promises to all of their citizens. Uh, and I think I italicize the word all because uh, even this so-called golden age of capitalism or, or the, the, the period from 75, uh, 45 to 73, these promises weren't available to everyone. Um, and now, of course, in 2022, the other key word is sustainable. How do you make them environmentally sustainable? Because all of this was, was based on a system of environmental exploitation um, that is, cannot be repeated right? Um, just ecologically, we won't be able to do it. And so uh, it's an extremely tall order. I don't, the book doesn't uh, really offer a, a, a political vision for how that might be achieved. But uh, hopefully, as with, as with many history books, if it gives us a sense of how we got here, then, then it might contribute to, to where we go from here. Perhaps as a follow-up to that, you'll forgive me the the presentist bias as, as a political scientist. Um, right. I what you describe is very dangerous, right? So the the notion that the states had have learned how to break promises um, to uh, you know sort of 
group of people that have been the the the, the basis for for uh, democratic capitalism in the 20th century um, and have sort of dangled identity-based prom- promises to others um, and have therefore, as you say, you know, that, that the left has embraced or brought them on board precisely through these. Um, it sounds to me like well, in, instead of instead of learning how to make promises and keep promises to all citizens, they have sort of learned how to keep promises to no citizens while usefully dividing them. Um, and, uh, and in connection to that, I was wondering how you see then the the most recent rise of the, the right-wing populism in connection to this period of breaking promises. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think um, it's uh, probably one of the more obvious implica- implications of the book that there are now politicians across the global north um, that are unfortunately, and I, I, your word dangerous uh, uh, probably hits it on the head, they would t- look at my story and say, that's exactly why we have to do what we're doing, right? Um, whether it's Trump or Putin or uh, Brexit or uh, law and justice, right? Any, anyone, um, Orban, right? they're all trying to say uh, this order which promised freedom and self-representation, uh, self-fulfillment was actually just one of breaking promises. And, and I've been aware of that uh, was actually a period in which right, promise, the state broke its promises to you. Um, not only that, but even worse, uh, everything you thought, maybe thought about 1989 was uh, false. Um, and I realize that that's a, you know, in the wrong hands, that, the, that this is not something that um, uh, is a historical narrative that uh, could be dangerous, as you, as you said. At the same time, those things are being, the, the, re, the reason that populist parties have risen was because the, narr- the neoliberal narrative was increasingly found just unconvincing. Um, and so, uh, in terms of that, it was gonna that it was going to in any way fulfill promises to you, whoever you were, wherever you were in the world. Um, and so, so I think we have to then uh, maybe it's an I don't know if it's an honest reckoning or some sort of reckoning with this period in a different way in terms of what it actually delivered to people or didn't. Um, and if we can do that, then. Um, Hopefully, we can go about building a different order that uh, that actually delivers to people, not by dividing them or not by only promising to a certain section of society, um, but actually tries to start thinking about how we can, as I as I end the book, sustainably keep promises to all citizens. Um, you know, it it is a. a um, I don't know that it offers much hope necessarily because uh, it it is still a vision that has never actually been achieved. Um, I thought writing this book, I was going to, it was going to be hopeful because I was explaining how the cold war ended peacefully and we all didn't end up in like a nuclear war Uh, that once you start to think in the terms of the book though, like that's kind of an afterthought of, a sideshow to what's happening, but that did actually all like, I do try to explain that too, just so it's not a complete downer, right? We didn't all end up 
uh, in World War III. So that's a good thing. Uh, but it does leave us with this other set of, of challenges that are, are very, very significant and very difficult. Thank you. Uh, that's a good uh, good conclusion. We do need to count our blessings. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for this great summary of the book. Um, and thank you for being on the show. Uh, the book is out with uh, Harvard University Press. Um, go read it. It's very rich. It's very interesting. And it does offer more lessons, not only to people like Orban and the rest, but also to, to the rest of us. Um, we have been hosting Fritz Bartel at the Review of Democracy today. Um, and we hope you enjoyed our conversation about it. Until the next time.